So Jesus has entered in into a dispute with the Jews. And these Jews are like the Pharisees or the religious leaders uh, that in Matthew 23, 2, Jesus says this about the Pharisees. He says, they sit on Moses' seat, right? So the Pharisees are the people who, who have received their ministry down the line from Moses. Uh, so they, they uh, and, he, and Jesus is fighting with them about the law of God. They, they're saying Jesus is breaking the law of God, and Jesus is saying, I am not breaking the law of God. And in the rest of the chapter, uh, 5, 19 through 47, Jesus is making his legal defense against the charges of the Jews. And in the closing of this, in verses 42 through 47, Jesus is, takes this dagger and he throws it at the Jews, right? And he says this, but I know, verse 42, that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. And so Moses and the law should be on our minds as we leave chapter 5 and move into chapter 6. And chapter 6 begins with this. It says in 6.1, after this. So uh, that's kind of the, the next part of our setting is after this in 6.1. That is to say, after Jesus confronts those who sit on Moses' seat and tells them that they don't have the love of God within them, which is absolutely savage if you think about the Shema in Deuteronomy. What does the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 says? It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So to tell the Jews that they don't have the love of God within them is to invoke the Shema and say that they are the ones who are not keeping Torah, that they are the ones who are breaking God's law. And so as we enter into the sign of the feeding, we need to keep the conflict between Jesus, the the word of God incarnate, and the Jews uh, over the law top of mind. Because uh, in this context, we'll we'll see kind of how the, the meaning of the sign plays out. Um, And as we continue in these verses, uh, we see more connections between our text and Moses, the exodus, the wilderness wanderings, and the entrance into the promised land. The next is that Jesus, when he performs this miracle, is east of the promised land across the Jordan. We see that in 6.1. Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So geographically speaking, uh, the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, is the source from the Sea of Tiberias, the Jordan River gets created. It is the, the, the headwaters of the Jordan. The river begins with the Sea of Tiberias. And Jesus is on the other side of the sea, namely the eastern side. And, and this is important because it is from the east that the Israelites cross the Jordan and enter the promised, promised land of God. 
If you remember in, in Joshua 3, that as the priests carry the ark, which is the symbol of God's presence and his mercy among the people of God, right? As these priests carrying the ark, as their feet touch the water, the water of the Jordan stands up at a place called Adam, and Israel is able to walk through on, on dry ground. Um, and so our text has Jesus, who is God most high, right? The very presence of God in the world, the one who tabernacles among us. He's east of the Jordan with a large crowd, kind of like Moses and Joshua before him. Jesus is also followed by a crowd. We see that in verse 2. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Matthew's account of this miracle in Matthew 14, 14 says, uh, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and had compassion on them and healed their sick. So likely in view here, when when John says the signs he was doing on the sick, it's likely a ministry of healing that is more widespread than just the two healings that, that John records for us in his gospel. Crowds were following Jesus because he was delivering people from sickness. And signs also played an important role in in Moses' journey of of leading the people of God out of Egypt. Remember Moses performed signs before the Jews in Egypt to to validate his claim right there. Who are you? We don't know who you are. And and he has a staff and he throws it down, turns into a snake. And he he takes his hand and sticks it in his cloak and he pulls it out as leprous. And then he puts it back in and it's healed. Right, so he performs these signs to even get an audience with the Jews. And then he performs all these great signs to deliver, there's 10 of them, uh, deliver the people from the hand of the Egyptians. So we see uh, uh, Exodus 4, uh, Moses performing signs before the Jews, and Exodus 7 through 12, where he's performing the signs before Egypt. And notice for a second, the differences between the signs Jesus performed that gathered a crowd and the signs Moses performed in Egypt. Moses brought down destruction upon the seed of the serpent to deliver God's people from their grasp, where Jesus' signs are to heal the sick and to restore the infirm. He provides wine and bread to provide and to sustain where the natural resources of people failed. Jesus' signs even raise the dead. Where the signs in Egypt foretell the wrath to come at the end of the age. If you just uh, look at Revelation and the connections between uh, that book and, and Exodus. The signs that Jesus performs offer to us a promise. Jesus is going to make all things new. We see that in Revelation 21.5 where he says, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Uh, And after the cloud by day and and fire by night, lead Israel out of Egypt with Moses at their head. Where does the Spirit of God take Israel? He takes them to a mountain called Sinai. And our our fifth piece of setting is a mountain. We see that in verse 3. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Jesus sitting on a mountain should remind us of Israel at Sinai where God gave them the law. On Sinai, Moses eats in the presence of God. Right, we see that in Exodus 24, 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, 
like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. It was on Sinai that, that Moses received from the very finger of God the law. We see that in Exodus thirty-one eighteen. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And so as we see Jesus sitting on a mountain with crowds flocking to him, we should be reminded of Moses on the mountain, eating with God and receiving from God the Mosaic covenant. And finally, the, the last piece of our setting here is that it is the time of Passover. We see that in verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. The Passover is the yearly feast that commemorates the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, their wanderings in the wilderness, their entrance into the promised land. If we look at Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25, we'll, we'll see this, and it's an extension of Exodus 12, 26 through 27, but Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25 says this. When your sons ask you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? And then you shall, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So the, these, these first four verses of the narrative of our sign are, are chock full of connections uh, to Moses, to the Exodus, to the wilderness wanderings and the entrance into the promised land. In short, as we read our text, we are to understand what occurs here in light of the great act of deliverance and redemption God performed to bring Israel out of bondage into the land of promise. The story of Exodus is exactly what Jesus and John want us to have in mind as we see the sign performed by Jesus here. The, the setup should have us thinking about God saving his people from the bondage of Egypt to gather them together in true worship of the true God in the land of promise flowing with milk and with honey. And this is a, a, a place of feasting. And so let us turn now and examine the sign. That's, that's verses 6, 5 through 12. Five says, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Here we have yet another reminder of Moses with Israel in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus' statement to Philip here, and this comes from Numbers 11. And in Numbers 11, Israel is in a bad spot. They're complaining, they're grumbling, they're tired of being on this road to the promised land. They want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back to their bondage. And, and they're tired of manna, which is what God provided to eat, and they just want some meat, right? That's what they want. They want a, they want a hamburger. Uh, they want some steak. They want fish. 
is, is actually what they remember in Egypt. Um, and so in Moses 11, uh, or in uh, Numbers 11, Moses is super frustrated, and he's talking to God. And, and Moses says in Numbers eleven thirteen, 13, uh, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? Which is very similar to what Jesus said in verse 5. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? The servant in Numbers 11 says to the Lord, where am I to get meat to give all this people? In our text, the Lord says to his servant, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, now Jesus is not really asking Philip for the location of the nearest bakery, right? So that he can go buy bread for 5,000 people. I don't even think even Costco has that much bread for that many people, let alone, right, an ancient bakery. Um, But Jesus uh, asks a question for a reason. Uh, Verse 6 says, he said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Jesus' intention is to supply the feast, just like God supplied the people with, with bread, with manna, and with meat in the wilderness. But before he does, he wants to show his disciples the hopelessness of the situation, and that's exactly how they respond. Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, so that's, that's a lot of money, and People wouldn't even get in the mouthful. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Both Philip and Andrew are overwhelmed with the task, but Jesus is unaffected. He himself knew what he would do. Verse 10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And Jesus takes his situation as he finds it. It's hopeless from a human perspective. And he miraculously provides a feast of bread um, that was that among, was among them, them had a strong, strong craving. craving. And the people, and the people of, Israel of Israel also wept, wept again, again and said, and said oh, oh, that we that had we meat to eat. to eat. We remember, we remember the fish, the fish we ate in Egypt, Egypt that, cost that cost nothing. nothing. The, cucumbers, the cucumbers, the melons, the, melons, the, leeks, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. And the garlic. But, now but now our strength, strength is dried, dried up and there, and there is nothing, nothing at all but this manna, manna to look at. Right? They, they despise God's provision for them. In fact, in fact, though the though people, people long, long for the fish, for the fish of, of Egypt, Egypt God, God supplies, supplies the host, the host of quail for the people, for the people to eat. What ends up ends happening in Numbers 11, 11 is God, God sends, sends a, wind, a wind, a bunch of quail, quail come, come, and these, and these, these, this, this rabble, rabble who has, who has strong a strong craving, craving they, they gorge, gorge themselves, themselves on the quail. On the quail. Like, like, they just they go crazy, and then God destroys them as punishment for their rebellion against God. But in but our in story, our story right, right, God, God, not, not, uh, uh, God, is, God providing is providing the, the, the for people, for people in a hopeless, hopeless situation. He's doing so in a way that is reminiscent of this provision during the Exodus and the wilderness wandering, but it's, it's different, right? God is providing for them differently, and, and there's a message that, that we should receive from the differences in, in the way that, that God is providing. 
At the time of Passover, Jesus is providing bread and meat for God's people, just as Moses did in the wilderness wanderings. And so now the meaning of the sign. and uh, We've seen the setting. We've seen the many ways in which John wants our minds to remember the story of the Torah and seeing the sustenance that Jesus provides on the mountain in the wilderness, now it's time for us to closely examine the meaning. What does this mean? And I, I said at the beginning that it means that God is saving the people to gather them to feast on the sun. So there's, there's three ways that we're going to look at this, uh, each in kind of part. God is saving a people, right? That's first. God is saving a people. Notice for a second in our text the primacy of Jesus in the narrative. He is the first. He is the actor. He is the one accomplishing all of the things, right? He goes to the other side of the Sea of Tiberias in verse 1. He goes up the mountain in verse 2. He lifts up his eyes and sees the crowd in verse 5. He speaks to Philip to test him in 5 and 6. Jesus commands the people to sit in verse 10. Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fishes in verse 11. Jesus commands the fragments be collected in verse 12. And Jesus avoids the force of the crowd and withdraws to the mountain in verse 15. Jesus is most certainly in charge of what is happening here. So it is proper that God is the subject of our point, that God is saving. It's also clear that God is saving from the connection to the Exodus, especially the Passover meal. Moses describes the Passover uh, like this in in Exodus chapter 12, starting in, in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel to say to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the the lintels and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Mark the entrance to your home with blood. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the, the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. And he will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. The Passover is a two-fold remembrance. It remembers the historical event of God delivering his people from Egyptian bondage and It reminds Israel that they must be covered by the blood of another if they are to be passed over by the judgment that is to come. So when Jesus takes up the bread and the fish east of the Jordan and he provides a feast in the barren place, he is signifying that he will offer up his own blood so that the judgment that is to come will pass over all who believe in his name. Jesus, like John before him, is inviting you to behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. In providing the feast, he is taking the words of Moses from Numbers 11, which we've alluded to twice already, and turning them on their head. He is showing that he is truly the prophet that is to come after Moses from Deuteronomy 18. Instead of saying like Moses in Numbers 11, why have you dealt ill with your servant? This is Moses' response to God about the, the grumbling of the rabble of Israel. Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Instead, as, as Jesus gazes out at the crowd in that desolate place, it is as though Jesus is saying, Gladly do I bear reproach as your servant. I have found favor in your sight, and I accept the burden of all this people that you lay upon me. Instead of Moses' complaint in Numbers eleven twelve, did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? As Jesus heals their sick and provides them food to eat, it is as though Jesus is saying, I conceived all this people. I gave them birth and I will carry them in my bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child. And I will take them to the new Jerusalem promised long ago. Not one of them will I lose. Instead of Moses complaining, I am not able to carry all this people alone. This burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I, if I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Instead, it is though Jesus, seeing the crowd as sheep without a shepherd, is saying, I alone am able to carry all this people. The burden is not too heavy for me. I will die finding favor in your sight, beholding my own wretchedness in order to save those that I love in the feast on the mountain Jesus is communicating that God is saving a people, that he is saving a people. So how should we respond to this truth? How should we respond in faith to this sign? The first way is to believe the gospel. Believe the message that Jesus died for you. That Jesus is calling you, that Jesus will carry you, and that Jesus will bring you home. And believe also in the meaning of Jesus' message. That Jesus has done the work, and that Jesus will do the work. You don't need to, to do it on your own. You can't do it on your own. Turn to Jesus to be saved and believe the gospel. The second way that we respond to this truth is that we share the gospel. John 21, 20, 21, John 20, 21 says, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Just as Jesus put on display the majesty of God seeking out a people to gather them together to feed on the sun, 
so too we as God's people go out into the world to call people to God, to gather with us, to feast on Christ. So we share the message of Jesus' love with the world that needs to hear it. And let me ask this question to us, to all of us. Who are you praying for by name? Who has God burdened your heart with that they might be with us in our gathering together, that they may hear the words of Jesus, that he loves them, that he cares for them, and that he will bring them home with you to heaven? Who are you praying for by name? So God is, is gathering a people. Right? God, God is gathering the people is the next point. So God is saving and God is gathering. The next part of our meaning statement is that God is gathering a people. God is saving a people to gather them. So Jesus performs signs and gathers a crowd. We see that in verse 2. Jesus sits to dispense his wisdom and teaching to his disciples who are gathered around him. Jesus lifts up his eyes and sees a crowd coming to him, and he responds by serving them in verses 5 through 12. And Jesus instructs his disciples to gather up the leftover fragments, which produces a symbolic 12 baskets full, signifying that Jesus will completely gather together his people. He will bring in their full number in, in verse 13. Notice who the crowds and the disciples are gathered around. It's not... It's not anything but Jesus. It's not anything but Jesus. Later on, as, as Jesus is providing commentary on, on this sign in, in uh, chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. All who gather to Jesus are his people, and Jesus is gathering together his people even now, this church, at this moment, is a symbol to the world and to all of us here that God is gathering his people. As we gather to worship our risen Savior by reading his word, by hearing the word preached together, by singing with one voice together, by praying together, and sharing in the Lord's Supper and celebrating baptism together, and publicly confessing our faith, Together, we declare and bear witness that God is gathering a people. Even as we share the gospel with those around us, we are testifying that God is gathering together a people. And so how do we respond to this truth? The first is that we gather with the people of God weekly. And as you are here, you partake in all the things that God has commanded. You hear the reading of God's word. You attend to the voice of the Spirit in the preaching of weak ministers. You sing with all you have to encourage the saints. You pray with us publicly and privately with each other before and after the service. You celebrate the supper and baptisms as we have them. And you confess the faith handed down once for all. You gather with the people of God weekly. The other way that we respond to this truth is you love the gathered people of God. You love the gathered peace, people of God. So Jesus laid down his life for us because he loved us so much. And so we ought not to reject each other or bite at each other 
when we have so great an example of love for each other in Christ. We should love each other as Christ has loved us. So that, that, that's, that's kind of for the people in our proximity. But we should also love other churches since they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here in this city, here in this country, and, and all over the world. We might not enjoy close fellowship. We might not even agree on some what we would consider really important doctrinal issues. But as far as they are the bride of Christ, they are beloved of God. And we ought to love them too. And the, our, our last point here is God is saving a people to gather them to feast on the sun. We have seen that Jesus is the gracious host of the feast, calling men to come to him and taking care of all those who draw near. We have also seen that Jesus is the servant of the feast, breaking the bread and distributing to the crowd. But Jesus is also the meal of our feast. He is the one who sustains us. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John six fifty three through 58. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In the sign on the mountain, Jesus is offering himself as the source of all life to a world that's dead in its sins. How should we respond to this truth? Simply come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Last week we looked at Jesus' warning that just having the scriptures without beholding and believing in Jesus is death. It's death. Just coming to church without beholding and believing in Jesus is also death. Striving to love your neighbor without beholding and believing Jesus is also death. Come to Jesus. See him and behold him. Adore him with your heart. Find in him all that you need. Come to Jesus. The, the, the next uh, way that we can respond is, is to focus on Jesus. Uh, a helpful thing uh, for me is 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This, this verse means that God wants us to worship him, to serve him, to aim to please him in all of our life. This, this doesn't mean for, for us Christians that we retreat from our obligations or, or our responsibilities to those around us. Instead, it is a summons to worship God in life as, as he has called us in. So, so some ways that, that we can think through this. Children, 
right? Children, you are in a very unique stage of life where you are learning so much, learning so much about how you can do good in the world around you, how you can love others well. And in your learning, you can devote yourself to learning in such a way that God is your highest treasure, that God is your joy, that God is the one who sustains you and operates you. This will give you patience with yourself as you stumble and fall and you make mistakes. It'll also encourage you and embolden you to be risky for God, to love well and to serve him with all that you have. Adults, it does similar things to us in all of our vocations, whether we work in the marketplace or we work at home. How can we do the dishes to love our family? How can we, how can we drive on the road around us in a way that honors people as fellow image bearers uh, and doesn't fill us with anger and disgust? How can we uh, be active in our communities in such a way that, that builds up those around us? How can we do everything, whether we eat or drink, to the glory of God? In our relationships with others, even when they are hard, how can we serve and love and take care of each other in such a way that God is magnified, that God is glorified, that, that people praise him because of his goodness? How do we endure sufferings knowing that they come from the hand of God? But they break our backs and they tear us down. We can do it by knowing that God is near us and that God loves us. And how can we enjoy the good times and honor God and praise him when things are grand? We can do it by having Jesus at our center, by loving the giver more than all of his gifts, and by singing his praise without ceasing. Let us worship God in all of our life. That's how we honor him as the feast in which he gives us. And so to conclude, I, I, I want to encourage us in our faith and, and strengthen our resolve to respond appropriately to these truths. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close by reading Revelation 7, 9 through 17. I want us to have this, this picture of heaven uh, in front of us because that's the place that Jesus is taking us. That is the place that he has us uh, like a, like a, you know, we're like the nursing child and he has us in his bosom and he's carrying us toward our destination. This is the place that, that Jesus is taking us. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne of the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood 
of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let us pray. God, thank you for the sign of feeding of the 5,000. Thank you for what it tells you about your activity in the world, how you are saving the people to gather them together to feast on your son. Thank you for how this, this picture of Jesus feeding so many in such a miraculous way as he sits on a mountain east of the, the promised land. Thank you for how it, it beckons our hearts to believe the message of the gospel and to trust in Jesus as our source and sustainer of our lives. Thank you for how it, it shapes us after his image and, and stirs within our hearts a yearning to believe the gospel and how it stirs in us a yearning to obey all that you have commanded us. We want to be a people of love, Lord, who, who lays down our lives for our neighbors, who, who honors you in every moment of our existence. Whether we eat or drink, we want to glorify you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict all of our hearts in ways that, that you want us to move and to act in new ways, to be doers of your word this week. Be with us. We need you. We can't do any of this on our own. But we believe that you are faithful to provide all that we need. Some of what we do will be scary, Lord. It will, it will stretch us. It will push us past what we feel comfortable doing. But Lord, we ask that you would be kind and that you would move us past where we're at. Because we want to obey you in everything. In every way, we want to begin obedience to all of your commands here in this life. So Lord, be with us as we go from here. Encourage us as we sing with one voice together and, and praise your holy name. Sustain us and, and grow our faith and nurture our faith. Nourish our faith as we come and take the Lord's Supper. Be with us, Lord, as we continue to praise your name. Amen.